is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. The Titanic claims more lives. A tragic end to a major search. Debris from that missing sub being found near the Titanic wreckage. And all five people on board presumed dead. We'll go in-depth. We look into the dangers of deep sea and other high-priced expeditions and what drives people to risk their lives this way. Also, we will talk with Congressman Adam Schiff about being censured. We start, though, with the tragedy near the Titanic. Back with us is Tad Fitch, who has been following the situation. He has co-authored a few books on the Titanic, including On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic. Tad, uh, thanks for being back with us. And uh, when we spoke the other day, of course, the hope was that this missing Titan uh, submersible would be found and all the five people on board would be alive. Sadly, that has not turned out to be the case. The uh, Coast Guard indicating that uh, that vessel had a catastrophic implosion, a catastrophic failure as it probably reached or got near the depths of where the Titanic uh, has been for, what, uh, more than a century. Where does this fit in with the entire lore, the entire legend, if you will, of the Titanic? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I I wish it was under better circumstances, obviously. Um, This is something that um, obviously the the story of the ship and the sinking is a a tragedy in itself. And we've had uh, 30-some years of dives on the wreck without there being any sort of major incident like this. So it's just another layer of tragedy on top of um, what's happened historically. And and I I really just have a lot of um, sympathy and... um, for the families and everybody that was impacted by what just happened. It's, it's, it's terrible. The, the uh, end of the news conference that we carried live here on uh, KNX, a question was asked, and I, I think they did not answer the question, is uh, what efforts are going to be made or any efforts going to be made to recover the bodies? But at this depth, at uh, where the Titanic is, uh, and, and I don't want to get too gross about it, but but what could they recover of the bodies at that depth? It's really hard to to speculate on that. I mean, it sounds like the craft is not entirely intact, so it it depends. I mean, they do have remote operated vehicles that can um, recover uh, materials like like what they did with the artifacts at the wreck site. And there's been other um, deep sea accidents where from airplanes where they've been able to recover debris. So, uh, for the sakes of those families, I, I would I would really um, hope that there's something that can be done. But again, it, it really depends on the condition of the the vehicle, and I, and I wouldn't want to speculate beyond that, obviously, for the graphic nature. But um, for closure purposes, I really hope that they can do that. You know, you mentioned that um, there have been other, and there have, of course, uh, dives into that area to see, for people to, to view the wreckage of the Titanic. And uh, and I think we talked about this uh, perhaps the other day, but it's worth revisiting, uh, that there are other shipwrecks out there and and people do dive to see other ones, but there does seem something about the wreckage of the Titanic that captures the human imagination uh, so that people are willing to risk their lives. And no matter how safe they're assured the vessel might be that they're going in, uh, I'm sure they had a sign on the dotted line that there were considerable risks, including possible death in seeking that site of the Titanic. What is it about that ship? 
Well, and like we had talked about the other day, I think really the the story itself is so fascinating, but it has really become more than a historical event. It's really ingrained in popular culture across uh, different nations and uh, across time since it's happened to the point where it's more so uh, become a, almost like a myth or a symbol than a real historical event. And I think that it's just like you see all the time in movies, um, TV shows, songs, everything. There's always references to it. So it's always close in mind when it comes to that. But um, I, I will say um, I think a big difference with this current situation, um, there again, there's been different submersibles and that are have had more research and have been dove dozens and dozens of times safely. This new um, submarine, the one that was destroyed, was a new design that was not traditional in a lot of ways. And um, there's always a risk factor involved in um, doing that and being willing to, to put your life on the line. But I think most people wouldn't do it if they thought there was a realistic chance of dying. They know it's in the back of their mind, but um, most people think that it'll be safe. And um, this was a, a relatively unproven design compared to the other submersibles that have been used going back to the 1980s. All right, uh, Tad Fitch, uh, thanks for joining us today. He's uh, written a lot of books on Titanic, one of them, On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic. Journeys like the one to the Titanic, well, they're hardly the only potentially deadly expeditions that people pay lots and lots of money to experience. There are the private flights to the edge of space, along with climbing huge mountains. Philip Ballard is a travel expert with HotelPlanner.com, and he's done things like hike the Appalachian Trail for 100 miles at a time. Philip, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Why do people do that? Uh, why do people do things uh, for, for ostensibly for tourism reasons uh, that perhaps cost a lot of money, but more importantly, perhaps are potentially life-threatening. What's the thrill there? Well, I think for some people, and they tend to be men, and they tend to be very wealthy men that have succeeded in their uh, career. And so there's a little bit of male ego at play. There's some bragging rights at play. And I think it also is just a bucket list adventure for some of these folks. I mean, keep in mind these dangerous adventures like these civilian space explorations, these Antarctica excursions, the, the Titan submersible. Um, you know, I, I think I think they're much <laughs> they're much easier to do than the training that might be required to actually climb Mount Everest yourself. So if you're a millionaire or a billionaire, these types of dangerous adventures are just, you know, they're on many of their bucket lists you and, know, I, and they can afford they can afford them. So the other thing is, like, you know, when you're wealthy, the cost of two hundred and fifty thousand or even a million is pocket change to these people. So the, the, the cost is not really an issue. It's obviously well worth it. You know, taking the uh, the threat to your life uh, aspect of thrill seeking, our last guest alluded to something interesting. Said, "Yes, there's always that that idea in the back of your mind that yes, this is dangerous. I could die, but there's something else to consider when that death threat is a little more imminent. For example, somebody likes to bungee jump. You bungee jump, and you tell your friends, "Hey, you know, it's it's a thing. I I could be killed doing this." Yes, that's true, but it is kind of rare. What if they told you, "Well, this bungee cord, this has killed eighteen other people before you. Do you still want to go?" And I think most people, unless they have mental problems, would say, "No, I'll pass on that one." Uh, so, is it just the idea that you're in the neighborhood of maybe losing your life rather than a, a real, real threat of dying by doing something like, for example, going down on a submarine? 
Sure. Well, I think for some of these folks, it's it's a dopamine rush. It, it, you know, the equivalent of jumping out of an airplane or something uh, to that to that extreme. Uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but to to put on my psychologist cap, I think there are some folks, some men that want to mimic a warlike setting or a battlefield setting to prove their own physical courage. So, you know, there's public there's plenty of published studies that show that, you know, some men do seek out death defying adventures because they want to prove to themselves and maybe their family or maybe, uh, you know, their, their, their family's legacy that they have the physical courage to, to do it. So if they were never in battle or if they never served in a dangerous war zone, uh, you know, exploring the Titanic or flying to space might be the next best thing. How did people who might be inclined to do risky things because of either the fun of it or the thrill of it or whatever their deep needs are to do it, are there ways that they can ascertain whether or not the trip they're about to make or perhaps maybe the special tour that they're going to go on, you know, climbing Mount Everest, that sort of thing, how dangerous it really is? Because they may not get a truthful response to that inquiry if they go to the website of the place that's selling them the, the goods? Well, if they make you sign a death waiver, I think that's a pretty good indication <laughs> that there is some inherent risk. Uh, so, for example, I, I've enjoyed doing these uh, Spartan races and uh, Tough Mudders. Mm -hmm. These are, uh, you know, 5K, 10K, you know, obstacle course, you know, mud runs. Think, think you know, like an army boot camp. And you do have to sign a death waiver. Uh, same, same when you do triathlons, because people have died, and there there is inherent fatal risk. So multiply that by something like uh, going to space or going to the bottom of the ocean. There's no doubt in my mind that these these folks have to sign death waivers. So they know the risks, and these are all smart people doing these adventures. Um, so I, I think it's you know one other point I wanted to make is especially if you're wealthy, there might be a sense of boredom and a little bit of elitism there because, you know, perhaps skiing in Jackson Hole or Aspen or, you know, going to charity galas is getting boring. And so these these wealthy explorers, they want to do something that's not available to the general public. They they want exclusive, unique, you know, amazing, unforgettable and, you know, fully immersive experiences that are that are not available to the to the typical person. So I think that's another factor. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, that's uh, Philip Ballard, a travel expert with HotelPlanner.com. Charles, honestly, uh, just between you and me, I think doing live radio is about as much thrill as I can handle. <laughs> you have a low tolerance, I have a low tolerance for adventure? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. uh, sign a death waiver? Uh, nah. <laughs> and still to come, a lot of people really uneasy about the economy, even though all of the numbers show it's pretty good. We think we figured out the disconnect. It's going to be interesting. All right. Uh, right now, though, doctors and medical centers across the country are being forced to think about rationing certain cancer drugs. It's because drug makers are abandoning those cheaper generic options. Now, Dr. Jack Jacob is a medical oncologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So abandoning these cheaper generics, I mean, right there, it, it feels pretty obvious. It's, it's a money thing, and so uh, cancer patients are going to have to suffer. A am I looking at that with too jaded of an eye? Uh, not really. Uh, it, is, it is really an economic uh, issue. Um, it sort of ebbs up every few years. Um, the, the drugs that are typically affected are the um, older, cheaper drugs that many of the pharmaceutical companies are not necessarily interested in in manufacturing um, because of the costs of it. 
and um, the profit margin uh, on it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we do have a reasonably good system um, to ensure that the drugs are being produced. But every so often, some event will happen that affects uh, a large um, group of people because uh, we're only really dependent on a few of the manufacturers to make most of these old, cheaper drugs, which we need because they're often required for curative therapies for a lot of different types of cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, testicular cancers, etc. So um, it's an economic thing. And uh, some will say that the government really should step up and, and intervene in a different way in terms of reimbursing some of these older, cheaper drugs and not make it such a bad return on the investment from the, uh, man- the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it is a very complicated problem, and it does extend, does it not, beyond just cancer drugs, uh, because there is a, a problem in this country now with a lot of generic drugs for cancer or for a host of other uh, ailments, and and largely, as I understand it, it's because, one, the economic thing that you just mentioned, that these drugs don't produce a particularly high profit margin for the companies that make them, but also they're done, for the most part, offshore, right? These are companies that the U.S. doesn't control. Either the ingredients come from overseas or they're made in places like China and India and, and, and sometimes Vietnam and Israel. Uh, and so there's a lack of often an inspection from the FDA because they don't have enough inspectors. It's a huge problem with our drug supply that is really pervasive, is it not? That's true. Um, you know, so some of the, the 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 events that occur may be a quality issue um, from the uh, FDA or, the, or inspectors, or it could be something with um, the raw materials of the drug or a lot of different things. And um, so there's a lot of things that could affect the, the, the process of the, the drug development uh, and production. However, because the margins are the way that they are, um, imposed on by, by the system that exists today, uh, drug companies will manufacture these drugs at low, at the lowest cost possible. And that sometimes will require manufacturing in, in uh, countries that you've just mentioned. Um, and our oversight is very limited. And then we're beholden for the manufacturing plant to be making, let's say, 40, 50% of the drug in the market here in the U.S. And that's that's a realistic number for some of these drugs. I only speak about the cancer drugs. It's it's my area, but you're absolutely right. It does affect a lot of other generic drugs as well. But when when there's such a large market influence by one or two manufacturers that may be offshore, as you suggested, and then there's issues with quality or whatever it is, production, turning it off or slowing it down has an incredible ripple effect. Uh, I think we all understand that, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have a lot of dollars and a lot of lobbying power with Congress. But uh, let's imagine a world where Congress got brave and could do something about this. What could they do? Uh, Are there other laws that could be passed that would uh, guarantee the availability of these drugs and so they would be affordable uh, for people? Well, you know, it's never just one cause that leads to these shortages that, um, again, as I mentioned, sort of every year or two um, and uh, for going on for a long time. Uh, So it's never just one thing. However, government's influence is 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 very powerful and and somewhat critical in this situation, because, you know, case in point, just a few years ago, when we were dealing with COVID, our our then president mandated companies to make whatever the, the drug for that was the popular thing at that time or 
ventilators or whatever it is. Drug uh, government influence on on things like this is is incredible. And so, one of the things that that has been pushed or tried to be suggested is that the the reimbursement on these generic drugs needs to be improved so that the margin is acceptable to to our our um, our manufacturing pharmaceutical um, colleagues. And and when there is these sort of shortages or things like that, any price increase should be respected and, and addressed and, and frankly paid. Uh, because right now, for example, the case of Medicare, even if there was a drug shortage on a drug uh, and led to another company that's producing it had, having to increase the cost uh, uh, of the drug, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be um, covered or paid for by Medicare because it, it takes six months at least for for drug costs to be accepted by Medicare and be covered. And so there is an inherent s- systematic issue where the pharmaceutical companies just do not see a lot of return on their investment. And so if this is a free market, um, fairly basic economics would say if you can improve the margins, you'll find a lot more people willing to get involved and avoid these shortages. All right, Dr. Jack Jacob, medical oncologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Burbank Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff has now been censured by the House. And Republicans voted for the censure because of his actions while a House Intelligence Committee chair in leading investigations into former President Trump. Congressman Schiff is with us now. Congressman, thanks for taking the time. Great to be with you. Well, I'm not going to ask you how you feel about being censured, because I think it's pretty self-evident that it's not a thrilling day yesterday for you. But I am going to ask you this. Uh, Do you think uh, that there might be might be any validity to the accusation that maybe you went a little too far in some of your public pronouncements when you were chairing the House Intelligence Committee when it came to Mr. Trump and his relationship, alleged relationship with Russia? Is, is that a possibility in your mind? No, not at all. I mean, that's not what this is about. Uh, this is about doing Donald Trump's bidding. This is about my investigating and impeaching him. This is about my obtaining the first bipartisan vote to remove a president uh, in history and my work on the January 6th committee. Um, they still didn't have the votes for it until Donald Trump said, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to arrange primary challenge for you. This is a very political, party line, partisan kind of a thing. Uh, and honestly, it's a badge of honor. Uh, the people who spoke on the House floor in favor of the resolution were all the kooks and cranks in the Republican conference, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Boberts uh, and the Lunas. Um, so, you know, this is what they do when they think you're effective. Uh, and it's all it is. Do you fear that that wing of the Republican Party is getting stronger or are they getting weaker? Are we making too much of them? Uh, Should Democrats relax a little bit or be very concerned? Well, I think the whole country should be concerned that they're consuming the time of the House uh, on frivolous things like the censure resolution. Uh, Today, it was a different resolution. Today, it was to impeach Joe Biden, a resolution to refer to committees, uh, an effort to impeach Joe Biden. Uh, This is what's happened. The the House is now being run by the most extreme MAGA elements. McCarthy has no control over it. And the the cost of the country is 
so many serious challenges that we face uh, in California with homelessness and the high cost of housing, with an opioid crisis, with uh, huge student debt, um, with uh, the excessive cost of child care, uh, things that I'm working on that Californians want us all to be working on, uh, and instead McCarthy is having the House spend its time on political payback. Uh, that's the, the, the opportunity cost here, and it's very high. Let me ask you this, because you just mentioned that you consider the censure to be a badge of honor, right? Uh, you also have announced that you're running for the U.S. Senate from California. Do you think that that badge of honor, as you put it, is going to help you in your bid for the U.S. Senate? I think Californians expect their senator to be not on the sidelines, but in the middle of the fight, uh, whether that's the fight uh, over our democracy or it's the fight to make a, a, the economy work for everyone. Uh, and yes, they respect that I've stood up to Trump, I've defended our institutions, uh, and that legislatively I have a long track record of getting things done, of producing results for Californians in the form of up-to-date textbooks and mass transit and more open space so, uh, yes, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, it just shows Republicans, especially the MAGA Republicans, think I'm too effective uh, as a check on their authoritarian impulses. And I think that matters to Californians. So you think it'll help it'll help in your bid? Uh, I think that uh, judging from the texts and the emails and the calls I'm getting, that uh, this strengthens uh, the, the regard that Californians have for me and for my work. Uh, and I think that, that can't help but um, help, uh, uh, you know, make the, the case for uh, my ability to uh, effectively represent the values of California and fight for the interests, interests of Californians. So we, we take that as a yes. Um, the response to the vote, uh, the censure vote, uh, we played part of it uh, yesterday in our news stories, uh, the Democrats yelling, shame, shame. Uh, but I heard the unedited portion of what happened after the vote. That went on for some time as Kevin McCarthy tried to uh, get the House back in order, was not successful. And it really went on and on, the demonstrations. And I'm sure you you uh, appreciate the support you got from your fellow Democrats, but is there a part of you that thinks maybe, you know what, the response a little bit too much, let's not play that game? Uh, I, you know, frankly, I was very moved by the response of just about everyone in the Democratic uh, caucus uh, who took to the well, and yes, they, they shouted shame at Kevin McCarthy, and you know, watching Kevin McCarthy, it felt much more like a censure against him, and in, in a very real way, I think it was. Uh, it was an embarrassment to the House to bring something like that to the floor, and he knows it, uh, but he has no control over his conference. Uh, and so I have no sympathy for him. Uh, he gave away the powers of that office to get the gavel. Uh, he he was willing to sacrifice the interests of the institution to do it, something John Boehner was not willing to do, something that Paul Ryan before him was not willing to do. Um, but it is something that Kevin McCarthy was willing to do, and now he is reaping the whirlwind. I am curious on a purely human level. Do you talk with these people, you know, even after a, a historic censure? Do you have relationships with these Republicans in the House? Can you sort of sort of let that kind of go and, I don't know, have dinner with them or, or discuss your, your vacation plans, things like that? Uh, you know, I have a lot of relationships with Republican members. Uh, I've worked to pass bills, uh, countless bills on a bipartisan basis, 
and even in the midst of the worst differences I had with Devin Nunes and the Intel Committee, we got the annual intelligence bill done every year. Uh, you know, Republicans coming up to me as they did last week to apologize uh, for what they were doing. Uh, and others tell my staff, as they have in the past, oh, we love Adam Schiff. We just have to pretend to hate him on Fox. Uh, you know, fr- frankly, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for uh, Republican colleagues who privately express their misgivings about what they're doing uh, and publicly show no courage. Part of the reason why our democracy has been in trouble is people aren't willing to live up to their oath of office and, they, and they're hiding right now. And one of the things I, I chastised them about on the House floor yesterday uh, is why they weren't subject to their own censure for telling the truth and doing the right thing, why they were cowering um, uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, uh, the most unethical of presidents. And um, and I think that was an argument that resonated because they recognize all too well the truth of it. All right. Uh, Burbank Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. I appreciate it. You know, when you look at things like the very low jobless rate and economic growth, you'd think, you think, right, that everyone is living it up. Everyone's just having a grand old time, enjoying life. Yeah. Right? Not so. No. No. Why not? Census data shows the average family in the country earns about 71,000 bucks a year, right? Which is not bad. Uh, But a recent Gallup poll finds a family needs at least $85,000 a year just to get by, uh, Caleb Silver is editor-in-chief of, of uh, Investopedia.com. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So is this country, uh, and we're not even talking about numbers for California, because I can tell you right now, even $85,000 is not going to get you by in uh, Southern California. But just, just the country in general is becoming too expensive to live in. Yeah, the cost of living keeps going up year after year. The last two years were extremes, of course, with inflation hitting a 40-year high. It subsided. Wages have grown a little bit, 4% or so year over year, just not keeping up with inflation. But it just costs a lot more, especially shelter and especially food. And those are two expenses we cannot avoid as Americans. So getting by means different things for different families. Of course, some families can get by on $65,000, Others have a higher cost of living, and they can't, whether that's because of choice or because of medical reasons or other reasons, it's just very difficult no matter how you slice it. So are we very quickly becoming, maybe we are already, a a country where there's really no middle ground, no really middle class either. You are, uh, you know, very poor and perhaps you can can get some government help or you're very wealthy and you don't care about anything because you've got more than enough money to do what you please. Well, we have this phenomenon in this country called Henry, high earning, not yet rich. And that's for folks that are actually earning families more than one hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year as a household. That's a fair amount of money, but they still don't feel wealthy because the cost of living keeps going up. Now, you can make choices like not sending your kids to private school, not taking big vacations, not buying that extra vehicle, the discretionary spending. But still, just day to day, people are finding themselves living paycheck to paycheck finding it hard to save, finding it hard to invest. And that's where the wealth building happens. But a lot of Americans feel that they're separated from that completely. 
you know, as, as I understand history, this country had a huge economic boom post World War II, uh, and probably I'm sure a lot of factors that were behind that. Uh, the returning soldiers got a lot of financial help in getting homes and starting businesses, and that that helped uh, uh, fire start the economy, if you will. Are we able to ever do anything like that again without having to go through a world war? Think about. That we used to be in an economy where people worked for 30, 40 years at a company and got that pension. Companies took care of it. All right. I, I think we're having some uh, yeah, it's... Uh, difficulty. Let's see if we can get him uh, connected again to our producers and uh, we continue this conversation because that is interesting. I mean, it, it, it was a, an economic miracle in, in some sense of the word. I mean, a lot of factors. Uh, the United States was getting paid back for a lot of the material well, and, right. and, and military that we spent and loaned to other countries. So we had that going for us. And you often do have periods of economic growth after a war because, you know, in the case of the U.S., we had a whole infrastructure uh, renaissance really under the Eisenhower administration post-World War II is when the nation's freeway system was, was really built, or at least a lot of it was built. So that pumped a lot of money into the economy. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we look at the situations now where it, if you look at some of the numbers, it does feel like we're in an economic boom, but not everything is matching up. And that's why we're living in such a weird time. Uh, I'm going to ask our producers, do we have our guests back yet? Uh, we don't have Caleb don't. Silver back with us yet. But uh, this is a very interesting discussion, and uh, I think that's part of what he was talking about. You well, know, we... and, and also, I mean, you know, you have certain items from time to time that go up and down. You know, remember we were doing stories not too long ago about the high cost of eggs, mm-hmm. and then the eggs went down. And then yeah. there was the uh, high cost of gasoline, and then the price of gas went down. But there are some things that continue, like health care. I mean, you know, that has not at all gone down. It has not even leveled off. It keeps escalating. Uh, So you have these other facets of life where people may be benefiting for a short amount of time because certain grocery items go down in price, but they see increases in a whole bunch of other things that they need to have and, and, and acquire in some cases that they just can't afford anymore. And Charles, you may be more knowledgeable than I am on this point, but going back to the boom that we had uh, post World War II, uh, as I understand it, I don't go back very, that far. There was not that you're old, because <laughs> uh, I think we're almost the same age. Uh, but were there not uh, a higher, ta- a much higher tax rate? Yes, on was. the wealthy back then. Oh, absolutely. Well, not just on the wealthy. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the the tax rate in the United States in the fifties uh, and sixties, even up until the seventies was really quite high. In fact, a lot of people would be shocked to figure out or, or to hear that in some cases people were paying as much as 70%, depending on your income, mm. and higher in in taxes between federal and state. And, and, and didn't you know, that force you to reinvest in your business rather than pay those taxes? In in some cases, but, but you know, we've had a dramatic over the decades decrease in, in taxation, even though people are understandably upset now about what they consider to be a high tax rate. But historically in this country, the the tax rate is is very low. And we're certainly low compared to, let's say, Western, other Western countries like, you know, the UK or Germany or France, where the tax rate is much higher. But in exchange, people get 
they think anyway, more from their safety net, you right. know, from their health care. More bang for the buck. More bang for the buck. Yeah. Whereas a lot of our tax dollars, let's face it, and we've done stories on this, a lot of our tax dollars go to what, going back to Dwight Eisenhower again, what he called the military-industrial complex, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of our tax dollars goes to support a very big arms industry because that's kind of what a lot of our business does, and it it sucks a lot of money out of our pockets. We want to apologize to our guest. I understand we we were able to get him back, but uh, we are out of time now. That was Caleb Silver, was editor-in-chief of Investopedia.com. We'll have him back. We'll We'll have have him back back. on another segment of the show at some point. So that's going to do it for today's In-Depth. We'll do it again tomorrow.